0: Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch Podcast. In this episode, the Department of Labor takes deregulatory action to undo a key Obama administration favor to its supporters in big labor. Hudson Institute Senior Fellow and Scholar of Philanthropy Bill Shambra offers an explanation for Americans' declining trust in nonprofits that satisfies Occam's razor. We remember the eminent British conservative philosopher Sir Roger Scruton, who passed away this week. In Monday's Wall Street Journal, Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia announced the Department of Labor's final rule on joint employment under the Fair Labor Standards Act. The new rule, which goes into effect in March, is designed to override legal guidance issued by the Obama administration in 2016, which had substantially increased the number of business-to-business relationships the governments considered joint employment, a concept that is a key part of a big labor campaign targeting restaurant chains like McDonald's. This all sounds arcane, and it is. In short, as Mulvaney and Scalia write, joint employment occurs, for instance, when an office contracts for janitorial service with an outside vendor, then closely supervises the workers in their schedules. But when companies are wrongly deemed joint employers, it saddles them with compliance costs that should be borne by only one. The Labor Department's new rule only applies to the Fair Labor Standards Act, the law best known for setting the minimum wage and the 40-hour overtime rule at the federal level. During the Obama administration, the National Labor Relations Board also passed an expansion of what it considered joint employment, The Labor Board has attempted, but thus far not succeeded, in returning the National Labor Relations Act standards more closely to the pre-Obama precedents. And these rules are a particular concern for chain restaurants and other franchised businesses. The brand name on the door isn't the independent operator who actually runs the restaurant. In a stroke of irony that probably escaped them, the New York Times recently ran a piece in which a number of acclaimed chefs praised the chain restaurant industry for the experience, often in observing or experiencing real-world business management and customer service, that they gained working for these chains. And one of the benefits the Times noted was, quote, corporate policies that claim to discourage the kinds of abuses that have come to light in the MeToo era, the sort of working conditions guidance that labor union activists argue should create joint employment liability. The new rule, according to Cato Institute legal scholar Walter Olson, would base what the Department of Labor considers joint employment on four tests, requiring much closer supervision and control than the Obama administration's directive, which called for joint employment to be determined expansively. In Olson's assessment, the Department of Labor's new rule at least seems likely to return the scope of rules to the same general neighborhood they occupied for decades up to 2015, at least for Fair Labor Standards Act's purposes. But it's one compliance cost in particular that explains why the Obama administration and its National Labor Relations Board focused on expanding joint employment liability—unionization. Going back all the way to 2013, union organizers with the SEIU's Fight for 15 campaign told a left-wing journalist that the first step of the SEIU organizing drive was to challenge the legal distinction between a corporation and its individual franchises. If the SCIU could overturn the distinction, it could pressure the corporations to force franchises to recognize unionization by card check, without a private vote on the question. During the Obama years, the union filed numerous labor board charges against McDonald's as part of its fight for 15, expecting the expansive Obama administration joint employer rules to be carried forward. But now the Department of Labor, at least, in the words of Mulvaney and Scalia, quote, gives companies in traditional contracting and franchising relationships confidence that they can demand certain basic standards from suppliers or franchisees, like effective anti-harassment policies or compliance with employment laws, without themselves being deemed the employer of the other company's workers. That will help companies promote fair working conditions without facing unwarranted regulatory costs. It was perhaps only a matter of time before nonprofits joined just about every other major sector of public life in losing public trust, And some recent polling shows that that shift is underway. And, like organized religion, major political parties, and labor unions before them, nonprofits are searching for explanations. At Philanthropy Daily, Hudson Institute Senior Fellow and Scholar of Philanthropy Bill Chambra proposes a concise possibility for the decline in Americans believing that nonprofits will do what is right. Nonprofits are proposing to do controversial liberal things. Chambra argues, what if the public is losing trust in nonprofits precisely because they're spending ever less time on what we would consider traditional charity, and ever more time persuading Americans to take action on social, environmental, and other key issues? While take action is a nice neutral term, there's little doubt among nonprofit leaders about what sort of action that would be. It would be distinctly progressive action, battling gender discrimination, reversing climate change, rectifying economic inequality, and so forth. There's nothing wrong with those goals. Indeed, there's a substantial American political party devoted to them. But that's sort of the point. Nonprofit leaders don't see taking action on these objectives as partisan causes at all. They are rather manifestly reasonable, objectively good causes supported by all people of goodwill everywhere. We all implicitly know to whom the summons to take action is directed, and it isn't, say, supporters of more traditional social and cultural norms. The data brack up, Chamber's supposition. Of the ten largest foundations by grants made to projects in what the philanthropic data service Candid calls democracy—think voter registration, electoral system changes, public policy, and the news—eight, including the Ford Foundation, George Soros' Foundation to Promote Open Society, and the MacArthur Foundation—are identifiably left-leaning. The other two are the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, a provider of donor-advised funds often used by left-leaning donors, like Lorraine Powell Jobs' Emerson Collective that we discussed in episode 103 of this podcast— And the Freedom Forum, the parent company of the museum, a now defunct monument to the Metropolitan Liberal Press. Capital Research Center analysis of slates of charitable groups involved in public policy in 2014 showed liberal leaning groups outraised conservative leaning groups 7.4 billion to 2.1 billion, a margin exceeding 2 to 1. As for the effects on philanthropy itself, Chamber draws on his experiences at a right-leaning grant-making institution. Knowing that far-left activists would scream hidden agenda at any local group that took money from his institution, conservative grantmakers had to think politically, and consider whatever they did in light of the least flattering characterization that might, and inevitably would, be made about it. Meanwhile, Chambers' progressive counterparts are accustomed to being treated automatically as the good guys, manifestly operating in the public interest. As they stumble into this new and more realistic world, their hitherto unchallenged self-regard makes them very poor political operatives. Schamber concludes noting that if the sector could at least acknowledge that its agenda is deeply controversial and disruptive, and not just arrogantly assume that all reasonable people must agree with it, that would begin to accord public opinion the respect it deserves, and address the charge that it's hiding an agenda. You can read the whole piece at Philanthropy Daily's Giving Review. We have a link to the piece in today's show notes at capitalresearch.org. Last week, we marked the passing of neoconservative historian Gertrude Himmelfarb, and this week we mark another, that of Sir Roger Scruton, the British conservative philosopher and author on subjects ranging from the theory of aesthetics, to political theory, to architecture, to wine appreciation, to human nature, to just start the long list. His career was broad. A student observing the riotous assemblies in 1968's Paris, he became a conservative, In the 1970s, he had convened the conservative philosophy group and introduced intellectuals and academics to an ex-minister by the name of Margaret Thatcher, a political figure whose philosophy Scruton was actually more skeptical of than most of his fellow right-wingers. By the 1980s, Scruton was organizing underground lectures for anti-communist dissidents in what was then Czechoslovakia. For that, he was detained by the regime's secret police. His final year was marred by a false allegation of bigotry in his homeland and graced by honors presented abroad. Dogged reporting by The Spectator, Britain's venerable political magazine, exposed the falsity and secured an apology, and later reinstatement to a government advisory position on architecture that had been stripped from him. He defeated by his innocence the Twitter mob, even if at great cost. His legacy can be expected to live on beyond the controversies of the day. Michael Brendan Dougherty, writer for National Review, proposed that, quote, Scruton may be the only conservative of his generation whose work will be read a hundred years hence. May he rest in peace. That's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on YouTube, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.